Welcome to another episode of Berean's Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. Good morning, faith family. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. I want to welcome those gathered in Lakeville and in our sanctuary service. Uh, continuing this morning in our series called Victorious, we've been uh, going through the book of Revelation and kind of an overview uh, style and uh, just looking at uh, what a book that's often intimidating for people has to say to our everyday uh, walk with Jesus. In fact, a lot of times when you study the book of Revelation, it tends to be so theory-based and uh, out there and not very relevant relevant to our life, and I've made a commitment uh, to you to show you how relevant this book really is. It's a difficult book, it's challenging, uh, but yet it's very, very much applicable to our life. And so this morning, I'm excited because I really believe in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Yes, we're doing two chapters, so I don't know, hope you don't have lunch plans. Um, but this passage speaks to uh, very relevant things, and so I want you to just Think in your life as to some difficulties that either you're going through or you've gone through. Um, there are some of you I know right here, right now, that are grieving the loss of a loved one. I know there are some of you going through job loss and you're wondering, God, do you have a plan in this at all? Why am I going through this? Some of you as Christians at work or with your friends or in your family are, are, are facing a bit of persecution because of your faith. I want you to think about those things as we approach Revelation 4 and 5, and you'll begin to see that it's very, very relevant for you. If you're able to stand... Would you please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word? And though we're going to look at two chapters this morning for our Scripture reading, we'll just read chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what may, must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. Third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them hath six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night they would never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created And you may think, what in the world does that have to do with my life? (laughs) Everything, my dear friend. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage that we get to uh, look at this morning and trust that your Holy Spirit would come and guide us into truth. We need to see what John saw. It has everything to do with today and tomorrow, and every day until we see you in glory. Speak to us. To the glory of Jesus, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Would you make those kids shut up? He didn't say that, but he thought it. The late Stephen Covey, in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, was describing a Sunday morning subway ride in New York City. Everyone on the subway was seated quietly. Uh, One person was reading the paper, another one was lost in thought, another gentleman was listening to his music, another one was leaning up against the wall. Everything in that particular moment was peaceful until they walked on. A man with his young children walked onto the subway, and his children were loud and rambunctious. They were throwing things, they were yelling at each other, they were messing with other people's stuff, and what made it even worse is the guy, evidently their father, did nothing. He just sat there staring at the ground. And it was one of those moments, you've been there, when everybody in that place is just kind of making eye contact with everybody else, and you know everybody's thinking the exact same thing. Somebody really ought to do something. And that went on for a few minutes, and finally Stephen had had enough, and he looked at the uh, gentleman and he said, excuse me, sir, your children are disturbing a lot of people. Would you please do something? The man lifted his head as though he had just been awoken from a long nap, and he looked at Stephen and he said, I'm sorry. You're right, I should do something. It's just, well, we just left the hospital about an hour ago where their mother, my wife, died. I don't have a clue what I'm going to do. And Stephen said that in light of that new information, this happened. Can you imagine how I felt in that moment? My paradigm shifted. Suddenly, I saw things in a completely different way. My irritation vanished. My heart, which was once full of frustration, was now full of compassion, and everything about my situation changed. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
Most of us can relate to that kind of situation. Now, I don't mean you opened your mouth and had to insert your foot, though that's probably true as well. I'm talking about this situation. You've been there when you were absolutely certain you knew what reality was. You were absolutely convinced you had it all figured out. You knew exactly from what you were observing that this is how things were. And then something came along that changed your perspective of that situation. Maybe for some of you, you had believed a rumor about somebody or a stereotype about someone, and then you actually met them. And you realize they weren't nearly the num-num you thought they were. And your perspective changed entirely. For some of you, you were convinced that, you know, love, marriage, that's not really for me. And then he or she came along and your perspective of love and marriage entirely changed. For some of you, you were setting your beliefs on something. And then you came across some new information and your perspective on that issue changed entirely. For some of you, you thought children were just an inconvenience, something that got in the way of life, and then she was born. And everything about your perspective changed. My guess is that all of us can relate to that kind of situation where you thought you knew reality until new information came along, something else came along, and everything about what you understood changed. Are you with me? Amen. That's exactly what Revelation 4 and 5 is intended to do. When you come to chapter 4 and 5 here in the book of Revelation, you begin to see some major differences in how people approach this book. There's a crossroads here at chapter 4. In fact, here's the question. How do chapters 1, 2, and 3 relate to chapters 4 and 5? And for the rest of the book, for that matter, how do these things relate to one another? For instance, some argue that based on verse 1 of chapter 4, you have the rapture of the church. That is, the church is taken up into heaven. But with all due respect, the church is not spoken of here. It's John. Look at verse 1. After this I, John, looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I, John, had heard speaking to me, John, like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. In other words, this is clearly, from the plain reading of the text, not the rapture of the church, but John is taken up in a vision. Some will argue also based on verse 1 that you have a time gap, that we shift here from John's day, chapters 1, 2, and 3, to things happening like 2,000 years or more after this. Again, with all due respect, there's just no evidence at all in the passage. You're letting the system interpret the passage rather than the passage speak for itself. The phrase after this is just referring to the continuation of the vision, the things that God is going to show John. In other words, the book does not radically shift here from the practical reality of John's day to computers in Belgium and microchip implants in our day. 
It's just nonsense. And it's sloppy interpretation. There is no evidence of that whatsoever in the text. So let me be clear. John is still addressing the people in his day. And good news, faith family, it still applies in ours. Just like every book in the New Testament does. So what's happening here? What is happening in this critical shift in the book of Revelation? It's rather simple. The book of Revelation is not meant to confuse you. It's meant to be clear. And here's what's happening. In Revelation 4 and 5, the time does not change. We don't jump to 2,000 years just all of a sudden. The scene changes. The scene, the perspective changes changes. I told you that apocalyptic genre is very, very, uh, it does this kind of thing a lot. So it's going to do this. It's going to show you the perspective of the field. And then it's going to show you the perspective like from the press box. And then it's going to show you the perspective of like the Goodyear blimp. It's going to give you different angles and different vantage points of the same reality. In other words, are you with me, Lakeville Sanctuary? We move here from the perspective of earth, chapters 1, 2, and 3, to the perspective of heaven, chapters 4 and 5. Now, why would such a different angle be necessary? You know this. Because, dear friends, if you based your hope only on what you see on earth, you'll quit. If your hope is only in what you experience in this life, you'll quit. You'll think death has the final word. You'll think things like sickness and tribulation and suffering and persecution, all of which are mentioned in chapters 1, 2, and 3, is all there is. And you will end up like my best friend, Koheleth. You remember him? All is vanity. What's the point? But God, by His grace, takes John behind the curtain, if you will, to encourage him and these Christians and us as well to change our perspective about the life we're living. Here it is. Number one. Even when all you see is suffering, chapters 1, through and two, one, 2, and 3, I don't have time to go back through that. Go to week 2 of this series, and we unpacked all the tribulation that John and these Christians are going through, and how we go through that as well. When all you see is suffering, know this, God is still sovereign. Don't let your perspective of earth win the day. You need the perspective of heaven. Namely, God is sovereign. Verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. One seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Around the throne were 24 Thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Before the, you're catching on, throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the, 
you got it. There was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Did you happen to notice a word that's mentioned frequently? If you don't get that question right, you fail the test. 19 times to be exact in chapter 4. In other words, you don't need a degree in theology to figure out the point here. In the ancient Near East, now we don't get that as much in our day because we don't live in a kingdom per se, but back in the ancient Near East, a throne meant one thing, sovereignty. Whoever is on the throne is in control. Whoever is on the throne has all authority John sees here that God is on the throne. He is sovereign. And in addition to seeing God on the throne, notice specifically in this vision that he is seated on the throne. That is to say, in heaven it is calm. It doesn't mean the lack of activity. It means the fullness of peace. There is no panic. There is no pacing. It is peace in heaven for God is not walking back and forth. I can't believe that happened. And how are we going to get out of this? And we better think of a good plan. Oh, no, 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 no. He is not only on the throne. He is seated on the throne. And he is shining in radiance like jasper and carnelian, the text says. These were precious stones. Oh, don't press the colors here. That's not the point. The point is God is shining in glory. He is shining in glory so much that John becomes like a 13-year-old girl. It was like this and like that and like this and like that and like, 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 like. It's the best he can do to describe the glory of God. God is indescribable. He's shining and radiating in glory. And add to that, he's steadfast in mercy. You see the rainbow of verse 3, which may refer to God's promise in the days of Noah that he will be merciful and gracious to his people even in tribulation. The point here is don't press the details. The point is this. Regardless of the tribulation on earth, God is on the throne in heaven. That'll preach. I told you this has everything to do with your life. This is not some theory or way out there stuff. It's about real life. God is sovereign over your life, Christian. That's good news when life is in chaos. It may be chaos on earth, but it's calm in heaven. You're Palms may be sweating, you may be as nervous as you can be, but if you'd catch a glimpse, if you'd, I don't know, look upward, you know, like set your mind on the things above and see your sovereign God seated, there would become a holy calm in your life that even though all I see is suffering, God is sovereign. It's like, have you ever looked out the window at the airport 
And it looks chaotic. There's planes taking off and planes landing and baggage transportation and traffic control and vehicles running all over the place. In other words, from the ground level, it looks like chaos. But if you could come up here into the control tower and see it all from a different perspective, you would see it's all by design. What good news, Christian. What good news. If you're here today and you're in the midst of chaos, you may be nervous. God is not. You may be pacing. God is seated. You may feel weak. God is strong. Your situation may look dark. Heaven is full of radiant glory. And if you want the peace that leads to perseverance, you'd better look beyond your situation and see the sovereignty of God. That's Revelation 4. That's Revelation 4. What you need in suffering, dear friend, is not a better situation. What you need is a sovereign God. Amen. Amen. That's just point one. Number two. Number two. God, speak to us. When all you see is pain, chapters 1 through 3, God is still worthy of praise. When all you see from the perspective of earth is pain, you need to go up. You need the perspective of heaven and see that He is worthy of praise. Verse 7, the first living creature like a lion, second like an ox, third like the face of a man, fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings full of eyes all around and within, day and night, they never cease to say what? Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who's seated on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, O Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Again, faith family, this isn't hard. Revelation is not intended to be confusing. It's intended to be clear. Yes, there are things that we don't quite understand, but the point is obvious right here. God is worthy of praise. That's, that's the point. In other words, the vision here of God goes this way. He is seated on the throne. All is calm. He is shining in radiance. He's full of glory. He is steadfast in mercy. He's going to give you grace to endure your tribulation. And He is surrounded in heaven by praise. Now, how many nerds do we have in the room? A few? There will be points along the way in the book of Revelation where I will have to stop and get a little technical because obviously there's going to be some things that are mentioned that just seem weird. But I've made a commitment to you that I will keep the main point the main point. We will see the big picture and not get lost in the weeds. But I must address these two groups here. The 24 elders and these four living creatures, some of you are thinking, who in the world are they? Well, I'll give you my short answer. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Why? Because they're not the main point. Have you noticed? 
The last thing you want to do is get preoccupied with things that are preoccupied with God. It's not a good plan. Don't get preoccupied with things that are preoccupied with God. If you do, they would say to you, what's wrong with you? Why are you trying to spend too much time figuring out who I am? I'm consumed with God. Why don't you join me? In other words, God's the main point here, regardless of who these two groups are. But let me take a stab. Group number one, the 24 elders, I believe, with many others, that this is a group of angelic beings that represent all of God's redeemed, that is, all of God's people in the Old and New Testament. You say, why do you think they're angelic beings? Number one, their function in the book of Revelation is that of angels. Number two, they are always associated with the four living creatures, which we know are cherubim. And number three is they talk of themselves as distinct from... God's redeemed, God's people. Let me show you one example, though there are more. Chapter 5 and verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, watch, you ransomed people for God. Not us. You ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. In other words, they speak of themselves as separate from God's redeemed. Now, why the number 24? The number is symbolic. I believe it represents the 12 tribes of Israel, Old Testament, and 12 apostles, New Testament. That is, these, this group of angelic beings represents, watch, the praise of God for His redemption. Now, you can email me if you have a different view. By God's grace, He gave a delete button. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We could have a healthy conversation, but again, these individuals, this group is not the main point. God's the main point. Now, the four living creatures are easier because we go back to Ezekiel and we see their identity as cherubim. Now, what do they represent? There is this, this symbol of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. In other words, I think it's very simple. This group of angelic beings represents God's creation. That is, if you'll just stop and think for a moment, these two groups together are actually making a very important point, and here it is, that God is praised for the work of redemption, 24 elders, and His work of creation for living creatures, okay? I won't fight you over that. We have room to disagree on that, but the point is clear, God is worthy of praise, from His people, from all of creation. Oh, let everyone and everything everywhere praise Him. That's the point. That's the point. So what does it mean for... I'm having so much fun. Are you having fun? Well, I'm having fun for you. What does all this mean for me? Here it is. Never let pain keep you from praise. Because if all you do is have the perspective of earth 
and you go through hard times and the loss of a loved one and persecution because of your faith, in that pain, you're going to say, I've got nothing to praise. I've got nothing to praise God about. But if you go up and you see the perspective of heaven, you will see that in all of His redemption and by all of His creation, He is worthy. You need your perspective changed. It also means this, that the best comfort in pain is preoccupation with God. Some of you today are preoccupied with your circumstances. You're preoccupied with your perspective. What you need to be preoccupied with is God. Now just as a side note, notice here that worship in heaven is not concerned about what you like, but what God likes. I just figured I'd throw that in. Well, I like this kind of... I don't give a rip what you like. If you were here and you said, I'd like to request this song, I think heaven would say, shut up, it ain't about you. It ain't about you. It ain't your party. It's about the glory of God. So don't you dare think worship is about you. Worship is about God. Being preoccupied regardless of the tune with the glory of God. And the things of this life will grow strangely dim. Are you with me? This isn't to be confusing. It's meant to be clear. The shift from chapters 1, 2, and 3 to chapter 4 and 5 is very easy to understand. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, suffering. Chapter 4, sovereignty. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, pain. Chapter 4, praise. Number three. When life seems hopeless, Jesus has your life in His hands. When life seems hopeless, Jesus has your life in His hands. Notice how the scene shifts again. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? Here in chapter 5, God is holding this scroll. We find out later on that this scroll represents the redemptive plan of God, the purposes of God in human history, and it is closed. That is to say, the plan is not executed, and if it remains sealed, God's purposes will not be realized in the world. And so a shout goes out, is there anyone who can open this? Is there anybody that can execute the mission of God? Is there anyone that can fulfill the purposes of God? And the response is hopelessness. Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
No man, no beast, no angel, no one in all of heaven. And when John sees this reality, he weeps. Why is he weeping loudly? Because, listen, faith family, this is where some of you are at today. If no one opens the scroll, life is chaos. Life is random. Life is meaningless. There is no purpose to it at all. Have you ever felt that way in your suffering? God, do you have a plan in this? Why am I going through two years of unemployment? Why am I going through this difficulty in my life? Is there any plan at all? And you have felt like John, hopeless, weeping loudly. Well, here's some good news. One of the elders declares, verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, Berean. Weep no more, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You have nothing to cry about. You have no reason to be hopeless. There is one who can execute the plan of God. There is one who can execute the mission of God, and that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He has conquered because He came into this hopeless world. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. He defeated the grave. He ascended into heaven whereby He took that scroll and opened it. And all heaven erupted with praise. Verse 9 and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and here's what I saw. I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a really loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Weep no more. Jesus has conquered. What good news. What perspective-changing truth that Jesus has conquered. And so no matter how hopeless life may seem, guess what? Are you listening? Jesus holds the plan of God that includes the plan of God for your life in His hands. Weep no more. Your hope, regardless of what it looks like from the perspective of earth, is alive because Jesus is alive. And he opened 
scroll. Oh, faith family, when the music of life gets sad, Christians have a new song to sing. This world can't take your song away. You say, what's the new song? I think the new song, I wouldn't take persecution over this. I think the new song is redemption song. It's new because it's never been able to be sung before in history until now because of what Jesus has done. We have a redemption song. We have a song in our heart this world can't take away. I told you the book of Revelation is practical. It's not meant to be confusing. It's meant to be clear. And all of this leads to the final point, which is this. Faith family, when you feel like you're losing, know this. Jesus has already won. When you feel like you're losing, chapters 1, 2, and 3, certainly Christians under Rome in John's day would have said, uh, don't think we're on the winning team here. Sure doesn't look like it. Oh, John, oh, Christians, you need a different perspective. You need the perspective of heaven, which is that Jesus has already won. You see, what I've been trying to teach you, and I hope um, well and clearly this morning, is that the theme of all of this is that life is not as it appears to be. You look at things and you're like, oh, well, it must be this. Oh, but there's so much more going on. You see suffering, but God is sovereign. You feel pain, but God's worthy to be praised. You feel hopeless. Jesus holds the plan of life in your hands. And now here's the biggest twist of all. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now watch verse 6. And between the throne, the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the, the elder declared, don't weep because he is conquered. Who is conquered? The lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah, this conquering, victorious lamb or lion. And yet when John looks, he doesn't see this. He doesn't see a conquering lion. He doesn't see a victorious lion. What he sees is this. That doesn't look like winning. That doesn't look victorious to me at all. I thought I was going to see a lion, and yet I see a slain lamb. What's going on here? Oh, this will preach. How did Jesus get to his victorious status? Through suffering. Had you looked upon Jesus from the perspective of the earth as he is beaten? Had you looked upon Jesus from the perspective of earth as he was mocked? Had you looked at Jesus from the perspective of earth as he's crying out on the cross? You would have come to this conclusion. Jesus lost. 
It's over. It's done. He's a loser because slain lambs don't win. Oh, but my dear friend, had you viewed those same events from the perspective of heaven, you would know that Jesus was not defeated by his suffering. Jesus was victorious through his suffering. Trust me, on the cross, things were not as they appeared to be. Christian, does it ever feel like you're losing? You look around your circumstances and it feels like evil triumphs. Death has the final word. Christianity seems to be fleeting, not advancing. If you stand for your faith, listen, you lose more than you gain. Well, then you must remember the good news of the gospel. Namely, Jesus became the victorious lion by becoming the slaughtered lamb. He won through the appearance of losing. And what that means for you Monday morning is this. To get to victory, you will have to persevere the appearance of defeat. You're going to have to be willing, Christian, in the eyes of the world and from the perspective of the world to look like a loser. But from the perspective of heaven, you've already won. Are you with me? This is the shift from chapters 1, 2, and 3 to chapters 4 and 5. It is not, with all due respect, teaching a rapture from tribulation. It's giving you hope in your tribulation. It is not some time gap for way off into the future. It's giving you a hope for right here and right now. How? By showing you that life is not as it appears to be. Because like Stephen Covey, you and I have a tendency to base our reality on what we see in front of us. And there is so much more happening than what you see on earth. You see suffering, God is sovereign. You feel pain, He's worthy of praise. You feel hopeless, He holds God's plan for your life in His hands. You feel like you're losing, guess what? Jesus, and in Him, you have already won. So faith family, please, Lakeville Sanctuary, everybody, please look right here. Don't you dare base your hope on the things you see on earth. You base it on what you see in heaven. Because when you do, everything about your situation will change. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for this great truth. We are a people that tend to base reality only on what we see in this world. And so we need, and thank you for the gift of grace that you gave John this vision to show us the perspective of heaven. Our life is in chaos and you are seated on the throne. And we go through darkness, but you shine with radiant light. We wonder at times, what is the point? Is there any purpose at all? And Jesus, you're the one that's opened the scroll. 
And sometimes we look at the hospital bed. Sometimes we go to the funeral. And it just feels like we're losing. But just a little glimpse into heaven would show us, oh no, we are victorious in Jesus Christ. God, give us hope today to persevere to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.